0: These defendants saw the possibility to refashion law in a really dramatic way, and they're banking on a conservative court being interested in that. We're talking about nutritional assistance, we're talking about, you know, all kinds of health benefits. We're talking about temporary aid to needy families, right, the list could go on and on.
1: the death panel patrons thank you so much for your support we couldn't do any of this without you if you'd like to support the show become a patron and you'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes that's at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes Order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Phil and I are here with a wonderful guest for you all. I'm really excited to have her on the show. Karen Tani is a scholar of U.S. legal history with a deep background in social welfare law, administrative agencies, the role of rights in the modern state, and her current research focuses on the history of disability law in the late 20th century. Professor Tani is faculty at both the Law School and the Department of History at University of Pennsylvania, and she also co-curated the Law and Political Economy blog symposium on the work of Marta Russell with Artie and I this past year, and wrote a fantastic piece for the LPE Cost-Benefit Symposium that happened in 2021 that regular listeners of the show might recognize. Um, It's so fantastic that I've referenced it many times in the past on episodes, So it's so wonderful to finally have her join us for a conversation about a really important case in front of the Supreme Court this term that has not nearly gotten as much attention as it deserves. Karen, welcome to the death panel and thank you so much for being here for this episode and also agreeing to help us dive into this really complex and important case. It's really such an honor to finally have you on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm a longtime fan of the show and I'm an even longer time fan of Phil. Phil and I actually go back Yeah, we we do Berkeley days.
2: This is this is very long in coming. Having this conversation, we're talking about federalism as well, which is, I think, how we sort of met.
0: Yeah, we met back in Berkeley, and Phil uh, was a reader for the my book manuscript actually back many years ago, and so I benefited from his wisdom um, in many ways since then.
1: Well, it's really wonderful to have you on the show. Um, You know, Artie and I are big fans of your work, and this case is something that you and I have been uh, talking about frequently uh this fall and you know before we get into the case which is health and hospital corporation of marion county indiana versus tolevski Karen do you mind talking a little bit about your work and your research so that listeners who might not be familiar can just get a sense of your background before we sort of dive into the real weeds here
0: Yeah I'd be happy to do that uh, your introduction was was great on that I see myself as a legal historian of um, 20th century US with the focus uh, especially on social welfare law, uh, equality, civil rights guarantees, rights guarantees in general. Um, I've become very interested over the years in the workings of the administrative state in part because that's where so much of the action is in the 20th century. Uh, I wrote a first book that was about The use of rights language in public benefits programs from the New Deal forward and how that was a break with the sort of old poor law tradition of the past and also just incredible resistance uh, to this new framing of social welfare benefits. And as Phil mentioned, that's in large part a federalism story as well. It goes from uh, the New Deal, which is like sort of the birth of the modern welfare state, up through uh, the welfare rights movement, sort of its stopping point in the Supreme Court in the early 1970s. Of course, that movement continued, but it only had this kind of brief uh, life in uh, federal appellate court decisions. Um, And my work more recently, as you mentioned, has turned towards disability law and policy. So I'm currently working on a book project that looks at The several decades before the ADA and about this explosion of disability related law and policy. And like you all, I'm really interested in the work that the concept of disability does for the state, you know, who the state wants to see as disabled, who the state does not want to see as disabled, what the consequences of that are. Uh, for citizenship, for public provision, uh, for access um, to so many other uh, rights and benefits of citizenship. Um, So I'm kind of puzzling through that uh, right now. I've been looking at not only um, disability benefits, but also disability civil rights law and um, deinstitutionalization is another interest of mine. So I've really benefited from uh, the way you all contextualize all of that on the pod. I've learned a lot.
2: Yeah, Karen, I feel like you are the perfect person to talk about this case, which mm-hmm. this this case is so important it is it is sort of like the but it's sort of like the inverse of the Dobbs case this summer like it's it's really important, but it has not gotten any attention at all, even though and i I think this is like where history really matters a lot and your role as like a legal historian matters um it concerns the in part this eighteen seventy one law that plays this really like unseen, but profoundly important role in whether or not we're like allowed to sue, uh, to enforce rights that we're supposed to have in federal programs. Right. And, and this is just, it's this sort of profoundly complex case and you could easily write it off as a case that deals with like one particular horrible thing that corporations are doing, uh, to people, but it actually concerns the way that, that the uh, the hospital corporation, kind of at the center of the case, wants to have the case ruled on, it, like it concerns the rights of, of of millions and millions of people, and so I, I wonder if you could get into like what is what is the the heart of this case?
0: So I think you're exactly right about it being a kind of low salience case in the public mind. You know, it's it's gotten far less attention than other cases from this term, much less attention than a case like. Um, jobs, but it could really have sweeping implications. um, And that's for a couple of reasons. So you mentioned this um, Civil War era statute that's implicated. So that in legal circles goes by the name Section 1983. Um, The technical name for it is uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, also sometimes called the Ku Klux Klan (laughs) Act. And so and 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 that gets actually to the context. So it was a statute that was enacted in the context of widespread vigilante violence against formerly enslaved people, as well as refusals on the part of state and local officials to protect the rights of Black Americans. So section 1983 provides that if a state official or some other person acting under color of state law causes um, some other person, some individual to be deprived of quote, any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws, then that individual can sue the rights violator in federal court to seek redress. So it's basically a statute that opens up the federal courts and says, look, if your rights are not being vindicated on the ground and may in fact be being violated by people with official power, the federal courts are Mm -hmm. going to be open to you in a way that would allow you to maybe at least get, you know, monetary redress. Um, And the role of this in governance, um, Phil, as you said, has been so important over time as Congress has fleshed out more and more rights. So we not only have constitutional rights, but we have a lot of statutory rights. And Congress has relied in many cases on private enforcement, in other words, in these private lawsuits, as the way that people actually vindicate their rights. So often there is some kind of, you know, federal administrative structure to enforce rights, but it's generally not adequate to the task. So there's this really heavy reliance on these private lawsuits, So basically, any suit, as this one might do, that would sort of cut back on the availability of Section 1983 is hugely important. Um, The other reason that this case is really important, um, but also underappreciated, is is I think because it deals with a a very specific type of statute. It's called a a spending clause statute and a specific variety of spending clause statute. So by spending clause statute, I mean a statute that's enacted pursuant to Congress's Spending power, its ability to tax and spend in the interest of the general welfare. And a whole lot of um, public provisioning occurs through spending clause statutes. So, the way that this statute and others like it work is that there is a federal grant and it would go out to state or local entities. And the idea is, you know, if you accept this federal money for XYZ purpose, you know, whether it's something like nutritional assistance or health benefits, Mm -hmm. if you accept the money for that purpose, then you're going to abide by certain requirements. So again, a lot of our social welfare state works through this type of spending clause statute. And so this case in implicating, you know, the rights, the rights that people have under those types of statutes, it could be hugely important if those rights are kind of cut back by by closing off the federal courts to the purported rights holders.
1: I really appreciate you laying it all out like that, because I think that these two kind of obscure and not super well-known frameworks are really almost a kind of barrier to entry to understanding even what's going on. Like, if you want to, you know, listen through the oral arguments, for example, there's a lot of discussion of, like, these sort of technical aspects of, of sort of what the intention of Congress was and sort of what the purpose of these clauses actually even are in terms of like sort of dictating what the responsibility would be in terms of like who could even sue for a kind of redress of their rights like this is a, a sort of broad rollback but it's like applying to a very specific case but it could be used in this much broader way but it's sort of couched behind these very obscure and technical frameworks that I think for a lot of people between the fact of this being a case about something that happened in a nursing home, right, which is a a kind of place that is, um, you know, what Ruthie Gilmore calls, you know, like an abandoned place. Like this is a kind of um, forgotten place in society. It's a place where we don't like to look. It's a place where we don't like to sort of see what's going on, um, where there is a lot of abuse often, where there is a lot of neglect and abandonment. Um, And so you have this kind of perfect storm, right, of like a very sort of confusing legal framework and uh, a place where we don't typically like to look at things that go bad sort of meeting um, in the Supreme Court. And this has this much broader potential implication than just, you know, the right to sue a nursing home for, you know, the abuses that occur inside of it. But you know, contextually speaking, I think a lot of people, you know, this is either sort of gone way over their heads or it's just really difficult to digest. And so I'm really glad that we're walking through this because when you brought this case to my attention um, over email, Karen, and I was sort of just Googling, I was just shocked at, you know, how little coverage there was a month or so before the oral arguments were supposed to happen. You know, this is this is not being uh, widely discussed at all. And it has these much broader implications than just nursing homes. But the sort of original context is, you know, around essentially the use of psychiatric medication on right. um, a memory care patient, on a patient who's um, deceased, actually, and sort of what the family is even entitled to in terms of compensation. But I mean, even at the frame, the sort of base of that frame, right, like the compensation is even important in a lot of ways. The family was more than anything else, I think, seeking to maintain access to their relative while they were in long-term care. And so, you know, this touches on so many things, whether that's, you know, the kinds of ideas that we've talked about in the case of conservatorships and Britney Spears and deinstitutionalization and the kind of ways that Nursing homes and long-term care are very much a kind of continuation of the total institution where you don't actually have a lot of control over where um, people end up, how long they're in there, and it's very hard to get people out. And it also has a lot to do with like the current working conditions of care workers who work in these facilities and sort of what they're put under and how the priorities of both these corporations that run the facilities, but also, frankly, the state, as evidenced by this case, are really not oriented towards meeting the needs of the people in the facilities, the staff working in the facilities or the families of people who are in the facilities who live on the outside who, you know, just want their relatives taken care of and kept safe. And so this is, a, I think, a really important, very like kind of difficult topic to tease out. And I, I really appreciate you you helping us do that because this is one of those things that I think is is so crucial towards sort of understanding even why, you know, we might be frequently sort of revisiting the topic of like the limitations of the civil rights frame, right? This has these much broader implications.
0: I really appreciate, B that you added all of that context to the facts of the case. And we can get into the facts in a minute. Yeah. But I just want to say that what you just said is sort of exactly what uh, law students often complain is missing when they read cases is they they get a window into a dispute and it's couched in these very legal terms and that would just be based on what legal claim is available you know that will structure how the facts are laid out in front of them and i think what you offer here with with the context that you gave is a sense of you know all the reasons that someone would be in the situation in the first place why a family would feel so desperate why, uh, you know, an employee of a facility might do what was alleged in this case in the first place. So you kind of just really nicely contextualize what I think, you know, on the bare facts looks like, you know, a a kind of level of cruelty and negligence that's really hard to understand. And you kind of, um, you know, give structural explanations for why that would happen in the first place.
2: Right. And it seems like, Karen, maybe we could just start walking through the facts of the case. There's almost no dispute that the uh, respondent in the case, uh, the respondent, uh, tolevsky's whose family's suing was abused. That's not even really the, the, the facts of that really are not at issue. What's at issue is how, and, and under what kind of conditions his family can, uh, file a lawsuit about that abuse or file a claim. And, uh, can, can we get into, to what some of the facts are, uh, what, what happened here and, kind of how the lawsuit kind of proceeded through the courts?
0: Yeah, I'm happy to lay that out. And one thing that I would say at the front end is the facts that we're going for are what's in the the filings. And an important mm-hmm. thing about this case is that it's never gone to trial, right? There's never been a sort of um, opportunity to sort out all these facts. So we kind of have different versions, right, to deal with. And and there's been no formal adjudication. But I think, Phil, that you're right, that, you know, it's, it's clear that there was uh, neglect probably to the point of abuse here. So the basic situation here and again the um the person injured is is now deceased. So we have the estate of this person now bringing the lawsuit. His name was Georgie Tolevski. In January of 2016, he was a patient at a nursing home facility that was publicly run and we can talk later about kind of the exact chain of um, corporations (laughs) that are involved in this. This is pretty complex. But the the facility was called Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation. So the backstory here, uh, and this is common, his family had been caring for him themselves, but his his condition had progressed. He had had a dementia diagnosis and this had progressed to the point that they felt he needed more care than they could provide. And so he began living at this facility. Um, Importantly, according to his family, he had a strong set of um, skills and cognitive abilities at the time that he entered the facility. So they said he was able to walk, he was able to communicate in English, which was uh, not his native language. He was able to feed himself, he could recognize his family. And the dispute really starts about uh, eight months into his stay at the this facility, his daughter observed major changes in his abilities. So, for example, she noticed that he had lost the ability to feed himself. He had stopped communicating in English. His daughter at that point asked to see what medications the facility was giving him. And she received a list of 10 medications, six of which she discovered were um, psychotropic drugs. So, at this point, the family is thinking that he is essentially being over Medicaid and, you know, more or less. Put to sleep to stay out of uh, to 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 not be an inconvenience to the right. facility. So they file a complaint. The next part of the story is really kind of confusing to me. I've i read it uh, framed as patient dumping, but I'm hoping that the two of you can help me understand why this might have happened. So over a period of several months, Telefsky was then transferred kind of back and forth many times between facilities. So the family had complained. The nursing home facility transferred him to a neuropsychiatric hospital, which was about an hour away. That was very inconvenient for the family. Several weeks later, he ends up back at the original nursing home facility. And then the same back and forth happens two more times. On the third occasion, the nursing home facility tries to deny his readmission and instead have him involuntarily discharged to a dementia facility two and a half hours away. Right. The, the family then um, used this formal administrative process to contest that. And they actually do succeed in getting an order from an administrative law judge that he must be readmitted to the original nursing home. But that never happens. He eventually ends up at a different facility altogether. Um, there is another version of the facts, somewhat different from the nursing home. Uh, again, they don't contest uh, the medicating. They suggest that you know his decline was simply part of his condition. And they also allege that he posed behavioral problems, which were a danger to staff members and other residents. And they characterize the transfers as a response to what they say was continued aggressive behavior.
1: Right. And this is a kind of, you know, tricky situation, right? Like this is something, this is a practice that um, has been widely reported on. The fact that in particular, in context of memory care in nursing homes, in general but especially in nursing homes um, that specialize or have a large population of, of people who are there for dementia or Alzheimer's um, you know the use of, of psychiatric medication not to uh, sort of treat psychiatric symptoms but for their sedative uh, <laughs> complementary effects I guess is is a very long-standing practice and this actually, you know, initially emerged uh, during the period of deinstitutionalization and and was a kind of policy solution that um, was pushed to state regulators who were having a hard time paying for the proper staff ratios in asylums and in state hospital systems. And so it was kind of billed as this technological revolution to be able to give people medications. Um, you know, initially some of these products were things like Thorazine and we write about this briefly in Health Communism in the Madness chapter, but this was like really pitched as um, a way of states being able to save money on on the staff ratios in state hospitals, which was sort of driving in a lot of like popular discourse, like the staffing ratios being very low was driving a lot of the criticism of asylums. And so... This began as a practice, um, which, you know, a lot of, uh, mad rights people sort of have engaged with this idea over the the decades, and Eric Fabris actually calls this chemical incarceration, or sometimes it's called chemical restraint, um, but this is really, unfortunately, a, a widespread practice, and, um, as is the kind of frequent transferring of patients as a punitive measure toward families who complain or who file complaints um, with, you know, state or federal agencies against these facilities, it's really kind of used as a way to punish people, this kind of uh, transferring, or um, sometimes people will be (laughs) discharged and then have to be readmitted. And ultimately, you know, we don't want to, like completely collapse, like the potential abuse and harm that also is is being experienced by the employees. Like they may have really been in a position where because of the political economic circumstances of how we run uh, long term care, this really might have been either, you know, their only option, the only option they knew, you know, he might have also been, you know, additionally, like aggressive. And this is something that we know, can happen particularly you know with dementia and alzheimers that this this can be an issue right and it's like difficult to navigate you know and 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 sort of messy but beyond that the, none of that justifies what happened right and and also what happened to the the staff actually having to not just do this with this one patient but we know that this is a circumstance that care workers everywhere all across the united states are frequently in and We have on the books, you know, a kind of commitment to being able to make this care available for folks in their own home. You know, in theory, he's on Medicaid or he was on Medicaid. He should have been eligible for home and community based services. But the problem is, is that many states have a cap on how many waivers they'll issue for home and community based services. And the average wait time is, I think right now, like 45 Months. So for uh, memory care uh, circumstances, right, this is particularly not workable. This is much more workable in a lot of sort of other home home care instances. But these wait times are unacceptable regardless of sort of what your needs are. But they're particularly not helpful to people who need home care for memory services because you have sometimes a a rapid change in someone's uh, capacities, in their Stability in their communication, right? And you can't just sort of get home care <laughs> overnight, right? And so these nursing homes and these uh, memory care facilities, so, which are sort of often um, listed as like a, a skilled nursing facility, for example, that's usually like what the official name is. Um, they they typically, you know, are the only option. That people have. It's not like they had the money to be able to put him in a private facility out of pocket. If they had done that care would have probably been the same. Let's be real. But we know that this can cost up to, you know, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars a month. This is not inexpensive and most people cannot afford it. And oftentimes people have to do deliberate spend downs of their assets to be able to even get on Medicaid to get in the nursing home in the first place. So what we really have is on paper a system that says in the United States, we guarantee people home and community-based services, but there's like an asterisk and it's access to home and community-based services. It's not actually home and community-based services. What we have is this kind of preference in our funding models for institutional care, regardless of the fact that for (laughs) decades in the United States, we've been working against this model. The Olmstead decision in 1999, you know, officially was supposed to sort of guarantee a right to home and community-based services. And that has not been a decision that has been widely (laughs) affirmed in, in our sort of social or political fabric. And I think a lot of people don't totally understand the really shitty circumstances uh, the family was in and, you know, many families are are in right now um, and will be for many years that really kind of is at the heart of this case, which is ultimately a kind of conversation about what we as a society have decided we can afford for people who need extra care and need more help.
2: So, I mean, so, and, and that actually gets to the way in which the Family here, the estate here is, is filing suit because they're they're filing suit not only under Section 1983, um, uh, which should give them a, a private right of uh, action, but they're they're saying that what they're trying to use Section 1983 to enforce is this something called the Federal Nursing Home uh, Rights Act (FINRA). Um, can you talk a little bit about what that is and sort of what the the nature of their claim is, Karen?
0: Yeah. And I like the way, Phil, that you kind of paired those two statutes together in the sense that Section 1983 is kind of the ticket into federal court, yeah. where the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act FINRA provides the kind of substance of the rights claim. So this is, again, it's a spending clause statute, which sets quality standards for nursing homes that receive federal Medicaid funds. So the idea here, again, is that if an entity is going to receive this federal Medicaid funding, then it has to agree to certain conditions. And this Federal Nursing Home Reform Act, FINRA, lays out a whole bunch of conditions. Now, some of those standards are phrased in terms of rights very explicitly, and this is important uh, to the claim. So, for example, there's language that says, quote, a nursing facility must protect and promote the rights of each resident, including dot, dot, dot. So the following right was at issue here. I'm quoting again from the statute, the right to be free from physical or mental abuse, corporal punishment, involuntary seclusion, and any physical or chemical restraints imposed for purposes of discipline or convenience and not required to treat the resident's medical symptoms. The statute goes on to... um, List some exceptional circumstances in which uh, physical or chemical restraints could be imposed. But point being, there's language in the statute here that sort of, again, sets forth for the right to be free um, from this kind of uh, treatment that the Tolevsky family alleges. The family also cited some statutory language, again, from FINRA uh, regarding transfers. And the idea here is that the facilities, again, if they're receiving federal Medicaid funds, they are supposed to permit each resident to remain in the facility and must not transfer or discharge the resident from the facility unless, and then there's, again, a very specific set of conditions. The idea here being that a patient shouldn't be transferred or discharged unless that's necessary to meet the resident's welfare and the resident's welfare cannot be met In the facility. So that's FINRA. And again, we've talked a little bit about Section 1983. And the way that I would think about it is that it's basically providing access to the federal courts, such that a person who believes that their rights under FINRA were violated could go into court using section 1983 and make a claim for redress. So for example, they could ask for monetary damages to compensate for the harm that Telefsky experienced in the nursing home facility.
2: Now the, and this is the sort of interesting thing here because the, you know, the defendant um, in the case initially is this, is this hospital corporation and the hospital corporation, you know, like what is it really interested in here? Like the, before we even get to the way that they're kind of uh, attacking this argument uh, before the court, um, I, I think the history of like this essentially business model that relies on Medicaid is sort of worth getting into. Um, yeah. You guys want to get into Can we get into that for a second?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be great.
2: I, I, I mean, so like one question is like even why conditions are so horrible at these nursing homes in Indiana and around the country. And I think it's like the, the, the context in Indiana, and this is not in like the main briefs um, in the case, but there's at least like one amicus brief that does sort of give the, the context for the state. So it sort of talks about exactly what has Valparaiso been up to, you know, for the last, uh, you know, few years. And it turns out that they've latched onto a pretty good, uh, you know, business model in which what they do is they are, you know, they're able to, Yank down this incredible pot of Medicaid money from the federal government, um, like a huge uh, reimbursement rate. I think Indiana receives more per capita in federal supplemental payments for nursing facilities than any other state, um, including California, and New York. Um, wow. And yeah, per on a per capita basis. Yeah. Right. And like what they're doing is essentially they're getting this money and they are, uh, <laughs> I guess Indiana, interestingly enough, accounts for 30 percent of all supplemental nursing facility funding uh, distributed at least on a on a yearly basis. Um, wow. And, and they're getting this money and rather than spending it on nursing homes, they're actually diverting the money and using it to build other facilities. Right. So there's this there's been like an Office of Inspector General report on this in which basically the intergovernmental transfer that comes from the federal government has created This situation in which um, unless there's some way to enforce your rights uh, to some sort of decent quality of care, which let's be honest, um, not everybody files a lawsuit and the administrative processes for like dealing with this are really horrible. Uh, So we have really substandard care uh, in Indiana, especially it's one of the worst states to be in a nursing home in uh, in the entire country. But their claim uh, before the federal court, it seems, and Karen, maybe you can walk us through this. Their claim is that like, because the state of Indiana didn't know what it was getting itself into when it signed up for <laughs> Medicaid, that somehow like there was a, there was a a, 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 like a tacit contract. Um, and that because it, it could not have like known that it was signing up, uh, for these facilities to be sued on the basis of section 1983, that, at least one part of the argument is that uh, that sort of federalism principle, like precludes a lawsuit. Is that, am I getting that right? It's a, it's a pretty bizarre argument, but there's a, there's a long history of it, which you've written about um, in your work on, on Pennhurst. And I wonder if you could get into that a little bit.
0: Yeah. And the way that you contextualize it is helpful and it goes, I think towards undermining their argument somewhat in the sense that if you're savvy enough, to see Medicaid as this incredible source of funds, you're probably savvy as well about your potential liabilities under this same statute. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll walk you through the, the way that they responded to the lawsuit. So essentially what they're saying is that this whole complaint should be dismissed. Again, not for any reasons having to do with the facts here, but because they say section 1983 may not serve as a vehicle for a private right of action for this kind of violation of FINRA. And they focus on the fact that FINRA is a spending clause statute. And, you know, according to um, several decades worth of Supreme Court cases, spending clause statutes don't support a cause of action under Section 1983 unless very specific criteria are met, all of them having to do with how clear Congress was in its drafting. And we can go through, there's sort of a three-pronged test on different kind of axes of of clarity here. But the more general point that you're making, Phil, goes back to this notion of these spending clause, these cooperative federalism programs being in the nature of a contract. So in the Penhurst case that I've written about, the court famously said That these agreements between federal governments and uh, state entities are, again, akin to a contract. And the idea here is that if a state wasn't really on notice of a particular condition of the contract at the time they took the federal money, they shouldn't be held accountable later on for violating the contract. And that's the, the type of argument they're trying to make They're trying to say, oh, when we took the money, we had no idea that we could be held liable in this manner for this kind of, you know, alleged rights violation.
3: The key to spending clause statutes, this court said, is what the states are clearly told regarding the conditions that go along with the acceptance of federal funds. Among the most costly conditions that may go along with the acceptance of federal funds Is exposure to private litigation under Section 1983. The scope of potential damages liability is one of the most significant factors a school, or as in this case a nursing facility, would consider in deciding whether to receive Federal funds. States are therefore entitled, in our view, to clear notice that they will be subject to such private lawsuits if they accept spending clause money. Is that sort of that's sort of the same
2: argument that uh, states made in the uh, Affordable Care Act case and NFIB versus Sibelius. They were like, well, you can't, for, you know, you can't require us to expand Medicaid. Uh, we didn't know. <laughs> we, there's no way we could have known in this sort of tacit contract that uh, we were going to have to do. Th- that metaphor strikes me as very strange. Like that's that's a, that's a, a bizarre metaphor to describe like the process by which Congress passes. Laws and things like that. Like, why, why, why does the court latch on to that? Why has that been a thing that the court uses?
0: First, I'll I'll say that you're exactly right about MFIB versus Sebelius and how that was the key argument. So basically states were saying we've been accepting medicaid funding for some time and now you're telling us that we're going to lose all of this funding unless we expand medicaid in the way that you've laid out in this statute. And again, I think that argument had a bit more force in that context, context where it was uh, a significant expansion. That doesn't mean I think the argument should have prevailed, but the argument again is sort of based on this idea of kind of, you know, we had a particular understanding at time 0, we underst- we relied on that understanding. And now you're surprising us down the line. I think it makes, um, I think it makes less sense in this case, but again, back to the function of the contract analogy. So that at the time that this was articulated, again, this goes back to this Penhurst case, which is a famous deinstitutionalization case coming out of Pennsylvania. It's a case that's filed in the seventies and it reaches the Supreme court twice actually, um, in the 1981 Supreme Court case, this is the one where the court articulates this, and it's a, it's a conservative court. So here the opinion is by uh, William Rehnquist, the famous conservative who wanted to realign federalism in a more state-protective way. He is basically setting forth what would come to be known as a clear statement rule in this context. And it's basically, and again, using the contract analogy to do that. So basically suggesting that Congress has to be super clear in the strings that it's attaching to federal money, otherwise there's going to be unfairness to the states down the line when those provisions are actually enforced against them. So it's this idea of sort of um, coerced states, vulnerable states who are going to be surprised um, by interpretations of these federal conditions. So again, it's it's a doctrine that was developed in the context of thinking that the federal government enjoyed too much power over states and that it was using its spending power coercively. It's a doctrine that tries to kind of uh, recalibrate the balance there.
1: Well, and I think, you know, the fact that the kind of framework here is that the right to redress any kind of abuse that could happen should be retracted on these reasons. Is this a kind of common way of thinking about any of these things or uh, is this sort of like novel in a certain sense? Because I, I think one thing that I'd love to just sort of like contextualize is really what's at stake here, which is it if this decision sides with the hospital when with Indiana and against Televsky, you know, this means that it, it's much harder to sort of sue through this private avenue, which is really almost made available and correct me if I'm wrong, like uh, in the absence of there not being a really other way of enforcing your rights, this kind of private avenue um, in uh, the sort of absence or in the context of it being, um, you know, state officials or the state itself. Right. So this is, you know, in in some sense, like prioritizing the profit margins and um, the, I guess, contracts that these private companies who manage these nursing homes have over, you um, any capacity that patients or patients families might have for asserting their rights getting their rights met or seeking you know some sort of like redistributive financial justice after abuses happened is that correct
0: yeah, and I'll I'll embellish that a little bit. But first, I would want to say one thing, which is that I think we want to be really careful not to naturalize what is an analogy to contract, to say this is yeah. actually, you know, these are actual contracts on the They're line. they should not. Contract <laughs> right. law to interpret. This is public law, right? This is public law. These This is federal money. It's a statute that is, sets forth the terms on which federal money will be given. But B, I think your point is exactly right. And in fact, the defendants here, the nursing Home. Um, There are multiple defendants here. One is the nursing home, and the other two entities have a role in running it. So they prevail at the district court level, meaning at this kind of first trial court level. And what that would mean would be that, you know, in that jurisdiction, People who believe that their rights have been violated under FINRA don't have a way to enforce those in federal court. Now, what does that mean? The defendants say, well, you still have other avenues. This goes back to something that Phil mentioned earlier, which is that, yes, there is an administrative process for complaining. You all would probably know better than I do about efficacy of that process. But my sense is that it's not efficacious. And that it's not a good way to address what are really systemic problems. And in fact, in this case, the plaintiffs, that family tried to use that process. They got an order ostensibly giving them at least one thing that they wanted and it proved to be completely unenforceable. The nursing home just ignored that. So I think that says something about that administrative process. The other thing that you could, in theory, do would be to file a medical malpractice claim. This would be a state tort law claim. But here you would run into another conservative trend, which is uh, damage caps. So I'm sure this has come up on the show before, but various states have by statute, um, place limits on the amount of compensation that a plaintiff can receive in a medical malpractice case, you know, irrespective of the actual amount that a jury believes that they were harmed. It's just a statute that says, you know, your damages cannot exceed X amount. Sometimes there's also a cap on the attorney's fees, the fees that a plaintiff's attorney can collect. And Indiana has both of those things. Um, In addition, there's, a statutory process that in many cases would require uh, a medical review board to kind of um, it's like a a gateway towards being able to uh, to bring this action in federal court. And that can be quite expensive. So for various reasons, and there's, I think, a good amicus brief in the record from Indiana trial attorneys, they explain why, you know, this Section 1983 action is really in many cases the best avenue because of the unavailability or inefficacy of the other routes to redress.
2: And it's also a huge way that, I mean, even outside the nursing home context, people whose rights under Medicaid or social security act programs I mean, tons and tons of people who are on these programs, if their rights are violated section 1983, you know, should provide this other Avenue aside from a pretty kind of, you know, often not super helpful administrative process uh, to get their claims addressed. And that's, and that's sort of what's at issue because rather than just saying like this particular claim is precluded, the hospital system, the, you know, Indiana, they're, they're basically saying that section 1983 uh, on these like FINRA claims that you, you can't make them at all. I mean, it, it, and like if the court goes down that path, uh, I mean, already it's really hard to file suit under Section yeah. 1983. It's a really high bar and we can talk about the sort of the tests that the statute has to like meet to like, like, let, let's not be clear. Let, let's be really clear because like, there's this like myth that it's these, you know, trial attorneys who are like out there, like filing these really easy lawsuits. Like <laughs> Section 1983 is is not that it is really hard, I think, to get uh, relief under that uh that statute. But like, essentially what they're arguing is that like, you can't use it uh, at all in this case, right?
0: Yeah. They're trying to say that section 1983 is not sort of an available vehicle in this context. And back to your point about sort of, you know, why it's hard, this goes back and I apologize for getting a little bit technical here to whether, you know, if you have a spending clause statute as FINRA is, the court has said there's sort of this three pronged test for how specific Congress had to be about rights set forth in that kind of statute before they can be privately enforced using using Section 1983. So I think, Phil, that's kind of what, to your point about what's hard here, is you would have to be, um, Congress would have, have to have been quite clear that, I'll just read these criteria, Congress must have intended that the provision in question benefit the plaintiff the asserted right must not be so vague and amorphous that its enforcement would strain judicial competence. And then the third, the provision giving rise to the asserted right must be couched in mandatory rather than precatory terms. In other words, it can't be in any way discretionary. So that's um, that test goes to the statutory language, in this case FINRA, right? And what the court has said is if the statute, again, in this case FINRA, isn't sufficiently clear section 1983 is not available. So again like you said it's not it's not exactly easy and what does it mean to take this off the table completely? I think that it means rights will be even less uh less enforced. I also want to say something about private rights of action in general and Phil this goes to your point about maybe some myths about I don't know, like the ambulance chasing trial yes. lawyer or something. Also, we see this all the time also in the disability rights context, this idea of people who are sort of making money off of spotting, you know, um, disability rights violations. But I think it's important to remember that this was Congress's chosen enforcement mechanism. Yeah. So still coming from political science, you're probably aware of all the work on private enforcement and why Congress chose that over a more sort of muscular administrative right. enforcement apparatus, right? So again, that's a choice. And to sort of say that that enforcement mechanism is categorically unavailable would mean that you're committing to under-enforcement.
2: Well, that's the thing that I think is kind of the most disturbing about the case is like one of the things, and and I don't want to get too into the weeds, but like in addition to those three prongs that you have to meet, Right. Which is really like, again, if you're thinking about this like a lawyer, it's like that can be really hard to argue. Um, But then the defendant is like allowed to rebut if you have some additional kind of argument here. And there's this, you know, typically it's like if there are other routes to filing a claim that sort of counteract Section 1983, you shouldn't be able to use Section 1983. That's what the, the court has said. But FINRA, this nursing home law from the 80s, which was a direct response in a way to all of these, like, really publicized abuses, it says in the law, like, as plain as day, that the remedies are, quote, in addition to those otherwise available under state or federal law and shall not be construed as limiting other such remedies, including remedy available to an individual at common law. Like, I can't imagine. So, like, it's really hard to meet this test. You know, the the lawyers in this case are, like, working overtime to, like, you know, do it, obviously. But at the same time, uh, it seems like they've met it, and yet the hospital system's strategy here seems to be one of, like, scorched earth. They're just like, you know what? Uh, nothing matters. I mean, that, that, that's – I just kept reading it like they're it, – it it's a, <laughs> almost like a very, like, nihilistic uh, kind of, like, legal argument. I don't know.
0: Well, I think we can get into – you know, why it is that we're seeing so many other groups take an interest in this case, even if the broader public is not. And I think, you know, what you described as kind of the scorched earth strategy is because a number of interest groups see this case as a potential vehicle. And I think they're looking to a conservative Supreme Court to maybe do a lot of work, not just in the context of nursing homes, but in the context of, spending clause statutes more generally. Um, And as I said earlier, spending clause statutes do a ton of work for our social welfare system, right? We're talking about nutritional assistance. We're talking about, you know, all kinds of uh, health benefits. We're talking about temporary aid to needy families, right? The list could go on and on. So there's a way in which like, you know, there's kind of a narrow version of their argument and there's a broader version of the argument and they're making both, right? So they're trying to make the argument first that look FINRA- you know, you shouldn't be able to use Section 1983 to enforce the rights guarantees that, as you said, are in the text of FINRA, they're trying to take that off the table. But furthermore, they're trying to say, you shouldn't be able to use Section 1983 um, to enforce anything in any spending clause (laughs) statute, right? So that's the broader version of the argument. Um, So I'll say quickly, you know, so Tulefsky loses at the district court level. And then there's an appellate court opinion that reverses. Um, So that reversal would mean essentially that, no, the Tulefsky family should actually be able to proceed with this case. There was no reason to dismiss it as a matter of law at the outset. Actually, you know, this is a viable legal claim. So they sort of um, reject what the district court had said about the unavailability of Section 1983 and walking through the tests that we've explained, they come out the other way, right? So they say the statute is clear enough. And in addition, there's no reason to believe that Congress intended to foreclose a remedy under Section 1983. So again, they're saying the claim should move forward. And I think what you see from, so at this point, the defendants then petition for certiorari, which is essentially meaning they're asking the Supreme Court to entertain an appeal. And the Supreme Court takes a very small percentage of these cases that people ask it to take, right? So, in some ways, this is kind of um, not a hail mary, but it's you know, it's it's exceptional to get a case accepted by the Supreme Court. But again, I think these defendants saw the possibility to uh, refashion law in a really dramatic way, and they're banking on a conservative court being interested in that. And again, you can look at the amicus filings, meaning kind of friend of the court filings to see how important these other groups realize the case could Mm be. You know, one indicator for me, and Phil, this speaks to your work, is uh, other state attorneys general, you know, kind of jumping on the bandwagon on Indiana's side. Now, not all of them, but a significant number saying, yeah, this would be great for us if the defendants could prevail in this case.
2: Yeah. and And it's all of the, it's the Council of State Governments, the Government Finance Officers Association, all of these groups that are... I mean, let's not forget the states here, they're really acting like not they're acting like for profit corporations. Yeah. Not only are they like diverting the money to to other building projects, they're also using this nursing home money for other like to to finance revenues for other parts of the state. I mean, like this is re- like the why are they also interested? Why are they, uh, you know, carrying all of this water for this abs- really kind of absurd legal argument It's because of the money. There's so much.
1: Well, and I, th- I think it's like to to sort of contrast what we've laid out just now with the popular understanding of how these rights work, which is that something bad happens. And if there's uh, some sort of framework that you can use to push back on it, right, that people have their day in court and things work out and you can, you know, seek redress in some capacity. And I think there's a lot of like, just expectation that things go that way. And when I was sort of beginning to dig into this case, it was like really kind of shocking how much, you know, the states really sounded like, like corporations in this framework, you know, how much they were saying like, you know, we shouldn't be on the hook for these kinds of expenses or these liabilities. And that it's sort of almost privileging like their, their consent or something over anything really downstream that could happen as a result of that. But it's, I think, shocking to people who I've been talking to a couple people about this specifically in the the last month. And I think for some people who really do believe that, like, yes, you can sort of sue for your ADA rights or you can sue to, you know, try and protect uh, your loved one when they're in uh, a nursing home or sue to like even deal with like being fired for a disability, for example. These are not, (laughs) this is not like the easy pathway. This is not like a kind of avenue for grifters. This is, as as you guys have been saying, it's like a very narrow situation. This is a kind of well-known circumstance, right? Of abuse, of um, transferring, of sort of punitive relationships between the company running the nursing home and the family. And it's almost taking that, all of those sort of facts and sort of setting them to the side, right? And saying what's really important here is state revenues and budgets and the kind of cost benefit framework of, you know, what really works in terms of, I guess, using federal dollars. Well, it's almost like an assertion that it's not worth spending the money of like having to defend yourself against one of these if you're a state or a state, you know, a nursing home, for example, or that like these kinds of Violations, like it's it's so dismissive, right? Like it, it's very much taking this kind of rights framework that we've been critical of for a long time on the show, but it, it kind of is one of the best examples of how flimsy these rights frameworks can be in practice well, when we look at sort of what the priorities actually are that are being laid out.
0: I, B, I think that's a really great intervention. I like the way that you explain how people's statutory rights are being translated into a fiscal burden, right? As if those rights aren't meaningful and important. And, you know, literally in the text of a law that our democratically elected representatives have created to translate those rights claims directly into kind of a fiscal burden on states. You know, I think that's, I think that's sad. I also would echo and affirm your point about the inadequacy of this private enforcement mechanism in general in a context in which many people first of all have no idea what their rights are second have even if they believe their rights may have been violated have no ability to do even the kind of evidence gathering that the telefsky family was able to do in this case right maybe because of power dynamics or just lack of access whatever the case may be and then third Finding a lawyer who would be willing to help with what we've said is a very kind of technical area of law. So, you know, all of that, I think, goes to show that these (laughs) rights claims are kind of not as vast as they are characterized in some of these pleadings, but also like their rights, their rights that are guaranteed by statute. And if this is the mechanism to enforce them, it just seems disingenuous to say that that should be taken off the table.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, I think, telling to consider some of the circumstances that really led to you, Finra, like being passed in the first place, which is that, yeah. you know, in like in the 70s, when you had uh, deinstitutionalization happening, there was a kind of shift going on in who was paying for the hospital stays that that people were having. And previously, prior to Medicare and Medicaid um, being passed in the 60s, a lot of this was um, paid for by the states. States would be running their own hospitals. They would be paying for the hospitals and paying for these warehousing um, architectures. And they were very kind of locally managed and, and subject to a lot of You know, very sort of specific needs of that individual state, and sort of what that state's desire in terms of how many sort of people and who should be uh, warehoused. But what what happens in the sort of transition to throwing this federal money into the mix is that in the '70s, this a lot of states kind of realize as you hit this moment of fiscal crisis in the United States that you know what would be really great to not have to pay for all these people that were warehousing because we can just sort of shift the payer here by transferring people by doing sort of admission cycling, which is essentially they would discharge people, uh, some of whom who had been in state hospitals or psychiatric uh, hospitals for many decades, they would discharge them. And people would be sort of picked up and readmitted to different facilities, or maybe they would be released from an asylum into a community care locale, and then they would a couple months later be put into a local nursing home or a local group home that was then mostly paid for with federal money and not state money. And so what you saw is this huge shift in the duration of um, how long people were actually Put into facilities for what the kind of admission length was. And while you had this growing trend for literally decades and decades and decades of admissions getting longer and longer and longer to state hospitals and asylums, in the 70s, there is this huge shift, literally only driven by the cost burden of this warehousing practice, right, which states relied upon to manage the population but did not want to pay for it anymore where you see this kind of patient cycling arise where you have people who are being um really sort of cycled through the system in order to transfer that cost burden from the state government to the federal government and 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 this was this was sort of like the subject of a lot of controversy there's a great study from 1979 by Stephen Rose that goes through this kind of moment in deinstitutionalization and really looks at it from the political economic perspective of really what's going on. And and Rose writes that, you know, in his opinion, deinstitutionalization is best understood uh, not as a kind of liberatory practice or a kind of um, change in care guidelines or in morals or ethics, but as a specific political and economic measure that was designed to sustain near bankrupt state governments. And really establish the kind of basis for transferring the cost and burden of public services you know, to the private sector, really. And this is a kind of process of almost taking these populations that had been in a lot of large warehousing facilities and making them available to these new companies that were getting involved in the kind of Medicaid waiver programs and all of these group homes that were popping up, sometimes literally on the perimeter of the land where the old asylum was built. And it's, it's you know, it's one of those things where when you start sort of looking at the numbers, for example, Rose writes that uh, he's going through 1974 inpatient care in New York State hospitals. In 1974, it cost the average state hospital or asylum in New York State about $13,800 a year. And to do these kinds of discharging, uh, frameworks, essentially, where you would transfer the responsibility of the patient from a longer term facility into these shorter term, like either a group home or, or or a nursing facility. This could save the state, like on average, between nine and $11,000 per patient, reducing that overhead of like $13,000, $14,000 per person down to, you know, um, maybe about like $2,600 to $3,000, depending. I mean, it really was a case-by-case basis. So you see this kind of moment of savings really inspire, you know, from 1973 through 1977, a huge shift that, that is just like astronomically different than the trend for decades of these admissions being longer and longer. Suddenly, admissions are getting shorter and shorter. And this was a huge scandal. I mean, this was a big sort of controversial moment. I mean, I, I you know, there this, there's this, like, great sort of speech that Claude Pepper uh, made, I think when he was a senator, but maybe it was when he was a House representative. No, it was when he was a House representative, where he says that, like, you know, the only reason states are doing this is to save money, and people are not receiving care, and they're being put in sort of slum housing and boarding homes, and they're being forgotten. And, FINRA was supposed to try and address this. And that's why there are those really specific um, circumstances in FINRA that are supposed to dictate when someone can be transferred, because this was something that was like a known exploit that was going on. This was a known way to sort of game profits. And this is, I think, maybe a sort of moment where we can sort of get into the federalism aspect of this as well, because what's really going on here is also not just a fundamental problem in the way that we pay for care or in our judicial system, but a fundamental problem in the way that like our entire system of governance actually works.
0: Bill, do you want to speak to that? That's up your alley.
2: No, I mean, I think one of the big changes over this time period is you, you get in a way, this is also a period of, you know, in the 1980s, it's really sort of where a lot of the welfare state kind of falls out. Um, You get, you know, huge cuts to a lot of social service programs, but you you are actually seeing this kind of growth, if anything, over the subsequent two decades in uh, Medicaid. But what's really happening is, in part, you're seeing you're seeing companies basically figure out how to make a profit off of the people who were on Medicaid, um, and sort of sort of altering uh, the ethos there. But the other thing that's going on is that you're you're seeing this sort of uh, new federalism revolution in in the Supreme Court, in the Rehnquist Court. And Karen, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, in your work that you've done on the Pennhurst case, the, the sort of the legacy, I kind of sort of see the legacy of that is, you know, a lot more power for state governments uh, as sites of uh, authority in the federal state kind of welfare state that we have in the United States.
0: Yeah, thank you for that invitation. And I think, the work that I've done on the Penhurst case fits really well with this conversation um, in a few ways. I mean, to go back to that point about the purpose of FINRA and the clarity of the language, I mean, I think part of the legacy of the Rehnquist Court's new federalism, and to be clear, Rehnquist was at this before he was elevated to the Chief Justice position some of the gist of that is to essentially kind of second-guess Congress. I mean, that's what I find so striking about the (laughs) Penhurst case. So at issue there was a statute that, you know, similarly was responding to a crisis in the conditions inside these warehouse-like institutions, you know, places like Willowbrook, places like Penhurst. And in that context, the Congress set forth what you could read is, you know, quite clear um, restrictions on what recipients of federal funds could do, you know, or, or requirements of how what they had to, standards they had to meet if they wanted to continue to receive federal funding. And the gist of Pennhurst and other cases is to kind of is for the federal judiciary to go back and say, oh, but were they quite clear enough? Let's go back <laughs> to the statute and make sure they were super duper clear because if they weren't super duper clear, and again, this is kind of happening after the fact, you know, after the statute has been drafted, if they weren't super duper clear, you know, it's going to be unfair to hold uh, states accountable for violating the language in the text of these, uh, the statute that, you know, that gave them federal money. In the first place. So I think that's again, and I would read that as a statutory interpretation doctrine that is protective of the states, that is federal, that is favorable toward the states. I think that people in the Rehnquist camp would have said, you know, this is a this is a corrective to years and years of you know living under this kind of New Deal revolution on the court and the Warren Mm -hmm. Court, in which We see so much power going to the federal government and this is a necessary corrective. But I think, you know, the Rehnquist court kind of completely turned the ship such that, you know, now that we're looking at the Tulevsky case, you know, that doctrine that was kind of set in motion in that era is now is now the baseline. And I think it is um, it it gives states what I would describe as kind of like a lot of wiggle room or a lot of. Arguments with which they could try to uh, evade responsibility. Um, One more thing that I want to just say about um, this type of case, and we can see this in in other recent cases. So a a case that I've thought a little bit about in kind of as a companion case to this is the Cummings case from last term, Mm -hmm. Cummings versus Premier Rehab Keller, it was a case in which the court held that emotional distress damages are not recoverable under Section 504 of the Rehab Act or the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. And, you know, that case, again, is sort of um, similarly deferential to um, state and local governments, right, who are often receiving these federal funds. It's a case that says that you know, in this case, um, because it's under the Rehab Act, disabled people don't have the right to recover emotional distress damages when their rights have been violated under the law. And it basically, you know, takes off of the table, For some people, you know, the the kind of entirety of their claim, like if you can imagine a person who like, let's say they don't have access to the formal labor market. And so they don't, they won't be able to claim lost wages, for example, Mm -hmm. all of their damages for a rights violation for being discriminated against would fall into this kind of emotional bucket. And so in that case, the Supreme Court basically said, look, these damages in this kind of case just are categorically unavailable. And that holding, because of the way that different anti-discrimination statutes are kind of tethered together, that holding then extends to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It also extends to Title IX. So I think part of what I'm trying to get at here is the way that these doctrines that are kind of um, deferential to the states, the way that they kind of retrench civil rights claims, right, that Congress has articulated. That's been sort of their effect over time, and it, and it happens in case after case.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it seems far easier for the court to do that. I mean, like the, you know, this isn't something where Congress is going to come out and, you know, very clearly retrench uh, rights that it, you know, created or may have created, but courts seemingly have, you know, what Penhurst kind of opened the door to um, in a way was, you know, using these sorts of uh, arguments to say, look, Congress wasn't clear enough. You don't really have the ability to use uh, this right. And like, oh, let me look again and see if they they could have been clearer somehow. Um, and I think what's interesting is that like and maybe this is consistent with with a lot of your work is that it's it's interesting that state governments, which are these entities, which have an incredible amount of power. They're they're political um, entities. They, uh, you know, they are political structures in their own right. They're using language when they argue before the court as if they're like the people in the nursing homes. Like they're you know sort of they're positioning themselves in a way in this sort of legal doctrine, even to equate things that happen in public law to contract law as if the
3: state is a person. But if you go back and look, you know, these were the water company and fire company cases of the 19th century. Generally speaking, if your house burned down because the water company didn't put enough water in the hydrants, you were out of luck. But none of those contracts, if I confer a government right on you, the state is going to be liable if it violates the law, that right. No. Well, actually, what it says is if it violates a right secured by law.
1: And exactly. What is, and and what they, is, I
3: have a right under the law, to a certain thing that the the government has contracted with a provider to give me, I can go to court. Well, I, I, I don't think it's quite that simple. I think what is secured by law depends, among other things, on how 1983 would have been understood at the time it was enacted. And at that time, when somebody had the right to sue, somebody whose house burns down or somebody who doesn't get a benefit from a government contract, the contract said you will be liable to third parties if you breach this contract. Um, that, by the way, mm-hmm. a person who's really hard to sue, yeah.
4: um,
2: <laughs> you know, or, you know, a person when it's legally convenient, but not a person when it's not legally convenient, you have to find somebody else to sue. Um, I mean, is that like, so, I mean, like, I mean, I beyond, love that observation because yes. it's
0: absolutely the framing of like states as vulnerable, yes. like states as uh possibly subject to coercion vis-a-vis the federal government and to also suggest that kind of, you know, state dignity is on the line and it would be treating them in an undignified manner to not, you know, create these very state protective doctrines in case after case.
2: And it's I, I think the thing that's interesting to me, and I just sort of wonder, like, what we can take from this kind of broadly, like, what does it suggest about the bigger kind of political movements that's, that have been, I mean, the courts have really been central. They've been a major fulcrum of social welfare development in a way that people typically don't appreciate. Um, and I guess I wonder about your take, I was going to ask you the annoying, like court watcher question. Like, what did you take from the oral arguments? Like, who do you, th- you know, well, what side do you think is going to win? It's and and that like is kind of pro- possibly the most annoying question I could have yeah. asked. Um, but I'm I'm more sort of interested in what you take from this as an indication of a broader, like, is, is this part of a broader legal strategy?
0: Yeah, I think having listened to the oral argument, there actually did seem to be skepticism on the part of more justices than one might expect towards the defendant petitioner's argument. Um, so that leads me to believe that maybe this case is not going to have the sweeping effect that the defendant nursing home and these, you know, state AGs from various states hope that it will have. But I think the fact that the Supreme Court agreed to hear it in the first place says something about this court's disposition. You know, I think it's a court that is happy to revisit areas of law that had previously assumed to be settled, right? So in this case, a point that many of the briefs make is look, precedents seem pretty clear. You know, this area of law is, is settled. Don't there's no reason to disrupt it. I think um the petitioner defendants felt that, you know, on this court they had a chance of getting all of this revisited. Um and I think another reason, another trend that I think they've spotted that's clearly correct, and this is something that legal scholars and political scientists have written about is the way that kind of in, in case after case, often in kind of low salience cases, meaning ones that are, you know, not the Dobbs of the world, but something that the public will find hard to understand. Mm-hmm. And that low salience type of case, that's where a lot of civil rights retrenchment has occurred, you know, and that mm-hmm. this is a pattern going back several decades. So this is a thesis that um, Steve Burbank and Char- Sean Farhang have advanced, among others, and they've shown this empirically you know that it's often in kind of procedural technical cases where phil as you said the court is not saying you don't have this right what they're saying is oh you just can't enforce it in this Mm -hmm. particular way or against this particular person or you can enforce it but not to get this kind of remedy which happens to be the most meaningful remedy for you so it's this kind of um subtle way in which you see a rolling back of civil rights um You know, and in this context, I think it's this case is at the intersection of civil rights and social welfare law. Right. Because we're talking about um, Medicaid and health care, but also kind of all the 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 dignitary rights that go that are wrapped that are wrapped up in that. Uh, What else did you say that I wanted to respond to? Phil, can you repeat your question about? Oh, no, I
2: I was just sort of thinking like, you know, does this uh, does this portend anything, you know, about you know what we might be seeing you know is is this like a bridge to the 19th century
0: a <laughs> <laughs> bridge to the 19th century yeah th- that's an interesting question and you know some of uh i think it's correct that this is the most conservative supreme court that we've seen in a long time and they're changing doctrine in all kinds of ways um i think there again is kind of for some time has been some hostility towards uh, private rights of action, you know, as I said, going back uh, to the to the 1970s. So I think we could expect to continue to see that trend. I think what's kind of complex in this moment, and maybe you all can help me think through this, is that you know we're not living in this kind of mid 20th century post New Deal world that I've written about, where the main players in the welfare state you know with the exception of health, healthcare the main players are state and local governments and yeah. the and the federal government mm-hmm. i think as you all have mentioned kind of for profit corporations are having are playing a huge role here in kind of really complex ways and i'll just flag for you an argument that i found kind of so interesting and so puzzling so um there's one of the Amicus briefs. Hold on just a second while I try to um scroll to it. I think I just want to find exactly who raised this point. Okay, so there was a, an amicus brief in support of the petition for sorcerer. And it was filed by the American Healthcare Association and the Indiana Healthcare Association. And their brief made this argument that it cannot be the case. Congress could not have intended to expose state-run nursing homes. <laughs> that receive Medicaid funding to greater liability than privately run nursing homes that receive Medicaid funding. And they say that's the effect of, you know, the availability of Section 1983 is that these state run nursing homes are on the hook for rights violations in a way that privately run nursing homes aren't. And for that reason, they said, right, that this can't be the right. Interpretation of the of the statute, like I found that argument um, really puzzling, and maybe you can help me think through, like the, you know what that, that what that says about the context here. The other thing that I wanted to flag for you all, and I know this has been a theme of the pod, is the role of the COVID nineteen pandemic and the argumentation yeah. here. So the same brief, again, this brief filed by the American Healthcare Association and the Indiana Healthcare Association said that. You know, the pandemic counsels in favor of the Supreme Court hearing this petition and and finding in favor of the defendants because, you know, residents of these nursing homes have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. This has resulted in increased personal injury litigation and, you know, the prospect of all this liability for state and local governments, you know, that is a reason to find that, you know, these Section 1983 suits should simply not be available.
1: Well, I think that's like a really important point, the point of COVID here, especially if we think about what some of the changes were that immediately went into place in 2020 in response to early reporting that we were seeing lots more cases concentrated in a lot of these facilities. I mean, New York State sort of, Issuing these like broad waivers, sort of overturning the normal state of liability under the circumstances of COVID, was something that we covered closely. But this also happened in Indiana too. There, there was a a, a massive change to transfer law in Indiana that was responsive to COVID nineteen, and what they basically allowed as a result of COVID was to change some of the guidelines um, and, and split locations into into different groups of patients where you have, like, confirmed COVID negative residents in one area, symptoms in one area, and then confirmed positive cases in one area in order to sort of facilitate this in facilities that didn't have the space to do that, they the Indiana set it up so that they could, like, you know, make one facility all p- COVID positive and one facility all COVID negative and one facility you know symptoms but if you think about like the logistics involved in in all those transfers right and then sort of what that does and why that's being done part of it is like the direct result of essentially uh, staffing ratios being an issue once covid hit right where <laughs> where you you kind of have this moment where these decisions that were made i think in the the 1980s and the 1990s when you had uh, sort of that that rapid quote unquote, final wave of deinstitutionalization, even though this is yet ongoing, there was all this like moment of policy entrepreneurship where people were really sort of trying out multiple models. And what actually sprung up was all of these companies that were running small group homes or small nursing facilities and sort of stepping in to take over, um, In large part because the kind of larger warehousing systems had such a bad public image that this was really seen as like an attractive out that these kind of public-private partnerships could create a way for states to still have this capacity for warehousing, for the kind of removal from the general population, which is like required to sustain uh the labor force in a lot of cases if you think about sort of why nursing homes exist that's one of the main reasons it's so that the people who would care for that person at home can work and can go to work and can in theory not worry about that person being home alone because there's such terrible home and community based services so it's it's like this this kind of moment of investment that we saw that led to the nursing home industry at all um, has this context of, like, kind of experimentation and, and states being a laboratory, right? This is the kind of myth of, like, uh, this being a positive moment for experimentation. And nursing homes were supposed to sort of step in to be this new era. But I think what what is quite obvious from this case um, is that Really, while things might have changed, right? The priorities, which um are quite clear, as we've been talking about, have really not changed at all. And this policy entrepreneurship might have brought some new people into the fold, but that ultimately what we're sort of seeing is that Covid in I think a lot of ways has sort of accelerated this priority shift, you know, and made it perhaps more obvious in some cases which has actually really been underlying the entire industry from the beginning, this kind of focus on making sure that states are not financially put on this kind of hook for too much burden, that states do not have too much liability for what happens inside of these institutions, and that states also have some kind of separation between the institution and the for- sort of formal understanding in the popular imaginary of like what the state is. And I think you know a lot of this kind of is the the undercurrent of a lot of what we've been discussing today is that really sort of we made a decision and made a lot of different decisions actually <laughs> during this process quite quickly towards this kind of chaotic um, development of what is now the nursing home and long-term care industry and a lot of the priorities in terms of how it's organized while it may on paper be, Around the rights of the, the people inside, it's absolutely really much more looking towards prioritizing, um, you know, protecting the state itself from from liabilities above and beyond what a, a, I guess a reasonable expectation, quote unquote, would be of what states should owe people um, as a result of, of austerity and, and our choices about what to do with, quote unquote, non-valuable life.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's also the to come back to your point, Karen, about the question of, uh, you know, this argument that uh, Congress could not have intended this to apply to um, state facilities and not private ones. I mean, the distinction there really becomes kind of weird. So, like, the the petitioner here is a, like, public corporation. Um, They're, you know, chartered under a particular provision of, of the state law. They, you know, but the reason that they came into being, uh, or the reason that they were able to develop themselves as a as an operator to the point that they have, um, they're somewhat it's like an old, cor- old, much older corporation. But they, after Indiana like changed its laws in the early two thousands, basically, you know, increasing the sort of Medicaid payments to to government run nursing homes. So basically, what the Marion County this corporation did is it bought up all of these this like chain of for-profit nursing homes um and now it sort of like owns i think 78 facilities um and then what it does is like you know on the one hand it's sort of acting like a for-profit uh, corporation the way that it shifts money around but the other thing it does is like it this is uh sort of there's a there is a distributive kind of politics here too because what they're doing is um the county can then build this huge hospital in indianapolis and this this hospital has this like really you know exorbitantly funded medical center with uh, top of the line architecture and like a rooftop garden i think it costs 754 million dollars and the county could say look we we built all of this without raising taxes and like uh-huh. where did the money where did the money come from it came from them siphoning off of all of the nursing home payments and so like you know-
0: Yeah. And the private corporations are not shut out of this. I mean, maybe you can explain to me the role of this other defendant, which is a private management company that is somehow also getting a cut of this.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like less clear on what the legal relationship between, um, and like who gets what revenues. Yeah. Um, but the, but the point, I guess the bigger point I'm trying to make by like getting into this is that like, what do these distinctions mean? Right. What do these pu- public and private distinctions mean? Like this is a county using uh, political power to, you know, one generate revenues for. I mean, it's not, and it's not just like the the ma- you know uh, management companies. Well, I mean, think about all the construction contracts that go into like building these facilities. I mean, this is a. It is a kind of uh predatory. It's like a. It's a classically like predatory arrangement in which you have capital in the state sort of like working hand in hand to like on the one hand, like create these sort of dazzling hospital complexes in, in a central city in Indianapolis, but then do that with uh, money that should have gone to preventing the kind of outcomes, the, the just absolutely mind numbingly awful outcomes that we're seeing at, at the 78 nursing homes that it runs around the state. And it, you know, p- treats people in the, you know, evidently from the quality metrics and everything like that. And other inspector general reports, it treats people just about as badly as it treated the the plaintiff in this case.
1: Well, and I think, you know, what happens often, like I don't, I wasn't able, I did some digging, and I wasn't able to really suss out the exact relationship between this management um, contractor and the run nursing home network. But what, what often happens is very much like what we see in the kind of decentralization of, of healthcare, where you have maybe a hospital with an ER that has an ER company contracted to come in and staff that, where you have these kinds of Public institutions that are maybe public in name, but that often, you know, the kind of broad function is fully contracted out to a private company. And sometimes, you know, in the case of when nursing homes transfer from private ownership to quote unquote public ownership, really the same company involved in managing the nursing home that usually this these transfers happen because of exposés and scandals, that company often can still be involved in running the nursing home. But y- there's a kind of idea of like, oh, well, now the state's involved. So there's like additional oversight or there's additional reporting required, partially because of these like spending clause requirements that we've been discussing that seem very obscure. But like in a lot of ways, these kinds of ideas like a CMS certification, right, like even the kind of payment requirements that Medicare and Medicaid have of facilities that they have to, for example, make themselves available to surprise inspections and, and things like that. I think a lot of people think of that as this kind of like failsafe for oversight and, and making sure that, you know, these uh, kind of abuses and neglect that they don't happen. But but ultimately, what often happens in these relationships is that, That private company that may have gotten in big public trouble for what they did when they managed a nursing home um, oftentimes can still be involved or, you know, a new company can step in to sort of manage staffing or manage the kind of uh, administrative functions even of these facilities, like, you know, doing the payments, doing the billing and stuff like that. The kind of line between what is a private nursing home and what is a public nursing home is so arbitrary, actually. That I found that kind of distinction in that argument that was so central uh, to the defense's kind of push there, like to just to be very kind of disingenuous. You know what I mean? Like these these ideas of like what is a private nursing home? And people often are like, oh, yeah, the problem is private nursing homes. It's like saying the problem is private prisons, right? Where, you know, the problem is just nursing homes in general and long-term care facilities in general and this kind of model of care that's predicated on fundamentally ideas about how the state should be spending money and where tax revenues should go and who is sort of entitled to the benefits of this federal money and i think you know fill the example of of all that money being funneled into a kind of large beautiful uh, state of the art full of artwork <laughs> hospital is a great example right of sort of how the populations who are marked as disposable their federal money that's earmarked towards their care is often you know used in these ways that i think really undermines the idea of like what medicare and medicaid were even set up for which was to really sort of be this safety net and be this way of catching folks when they needed care that they might not necessarily be able to afford. And I think so many people just sort of assume that these protections are in place or these regulations are there to keep people honest and on the straight and narrow and not doing these kinds of things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, a lot of these relationships are made available to private companies and private contractors to sort of come in and take this federal money and try and squeeze a profit out of the margins that they can make through their you know, ingenuity and entrepreneurship.
0: That is so helpful, Bea and Phil as well. And kind of, you know, the way that you deconstructed the public and private here. Um, And it goes back to, I think, a question that I think Phil raised about, you know, who do these federalism arguments serve Mm -hmm. in this moment? And I think what this conversation is crystallizing for me is, you know, they're clearly not just serving the states, right? Because there are a whole bunch of private for-profit companies that are kind of deeply enmeshed with what states are doing vis-a-vis the welfare state.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I even pulled, I thought you both would appreciate this, I pulled um, Mario Cuomo's address to the New York State Senate in 1984 from my notes and research for this project that Artie and I are working on, on um, the institutionalization in nursing homes and long-term care. And uh, the language in this is just, you guys are going to love this in you know, a a love to hate kind of way. Uh, Cuomo said that this was a, you know, the beginning of an unprecedented emancipation of the disabled that he was about to preside over. And what he's referring to is this rapid period of deinstitutionalization in New York State that occurs between 1986 and 1991, where New York technically closed seven institutions, which was Willowbrook, Westchester, Bronx, Craig, Manhattan, Newark, and Rome. And so this was like The last seven big, quote unquote, total institutions in New York state. And it was a really rapid and chaotic process that a lot of private companies took direct advantage of. But Cuomo's language is so telling. So he says, if the government is to be of the greatest help to the greatest number, then we must be a state characterized by compassion, by common sense and by competitiveness And we proved by our performance together that those virtues are not mutually exclusive ones. Thus, we understand that the government's principal obligation is to provide for those who through no fault of their own cannot provide for themselves, the old, the weak, those who simply cannot find a job. But at the same time, we understand a competing truth, that our resources, unlike the federal governments, are finite, and that we are constrained by the dictates Of an inexorable fiscal realism. In the recognition of that, the budget that I propose on January 17th, 1984, will recommend no increase in the sales, business, or income tax. And of course, it will tolerate no deficit. And so this was his framing of the quote-unquote unprecedented emancipation of the disabled. And it really lays bare who he's talking to here. There will be no deficit. We will tolerate no deficit and this will be characterized by common sense and competitiveness and this kind of idea of really you know ultimately at the end of the day states being in this unprivileged position relative to the federal government that should entitle them to you know essentially having this kind of flexibility to experiment um but that ultimately like what many of these experiments actually were in practice were taking these federal dollars that were flowing into states and really making them available to, you know, uh, companies that wanted to step in and and provide services for clients, you know, no longer patients, but clients. And this is really actually where that word begins to come in to the kind of lexicon of rejecting calling patients clients is in the context of, of selling the idea that deinstitutionalization is happening as this federal money is going into building the nursing home industry, Again, oftentimes on the same land that the old asylums were on before, and just the language of like it will tolerate no deficit. It's it's too it's a little too on the nose, you know.
0: I that's an amazing excerpt, and I think it shows a pairing of um, you know two things that I think I think about a lot, and I think you all think a lot is about disability rights and what they mean against a backdrop of assumed, you know, very firm and unshakable austerity, you know, this narrative that, you know, as you said, there can be no deficit, we have limits. And so in this context, yes, we can celebrate certain people's freedom and rights, but it's always going to be against this backdrop of fiscal limitations. And so, you know, a theory that I've been kind of playing with in some other work and and trying to show doctrinally, is how disability rights are often the vehicle for saying that kind of civil rights in general are maybe too expensive in this moment, or we need to put some boundaries on them, right? So in the context of this case, we just maybe need to make those rights less enforceable because, again, there are these hard fiscal limits, which, as the quote suggests, you know, states are uniquely experiencing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you you and I have talked about this privately about how, in a, a couple of cases, disability as a framework has kind of become a like a, a moment where we see a lot of this happening, and that this is one of the sort of key ways that uh, a lot of disability rights actually kind of exist is you sort of start from this basis of saying, like, oh, these, these rights are priceless, right? And yet, we have to also approach this from the basis of a kind of cost realist perspective where, you know, we're starting from a kind of imposed scarcity, right, that we're assuming is always going to be a fixture of the system. And then sort of within that, how are we going to work with it? But this never um, and and you make this point, Karen, in your wonderful cost benefit analysis piece for the LPE symposium that I was uh, talking about mentioning all the time, you know, these questions of like, well, how do we give people these rights on without it, with it being revenue neutral, right, without it being a, a quote unquote cost burden is really ultimately the question that's often asked in these in these contexts. But it's the wrong question. It doesn't tell us why in the first place we have a preference for warehousing or why, you know, home and community based services are not honored or why nursing homes are run this way, why staffing is even an issue in the nursing home and what ends up being debated in the kind of broader judicial spheres is very rote and technical and specific, but what it actually touches on are these fundamental questions of why are people made surplus? Why uh, do we have such austerity in nursing homes? Why does this abuse that Tulevsky experienced um, and the sort of punishment that was judged against his family by the nursing home, by like sort of using transfers as punishment, right? You know, why does that even happen is actually what's sort of going on here in the broader question, but it's really obscured by the kind of framework that really, again, privileges the fiscal relationships that are going on over the the actual services and care that are being promised and delivered.
0: I love that way that you put it about the cost realist framing and how it makes unavailable or unimaginable these kind of structural critiques or even kind of questions about why do we why do these current circumstances exist in the first place? And I think, you know, what I'd want to add to this conversation as well as, you know, let's let's not be overly celebratory of rights. I think Mm -hmm. you all would agree that rights framings can in some way have these same deficits in the sense that they're very individualistic framings. It's not that they can't lend themselves to kind of structural critiques, but they do tend to focus on, you know, how a particular individual was treated. And in, in that way, they also make less imaginable um, certain ways of framing injustice, for example, or thinking about what we, what we might need or want to do to remedy injustice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing at, at play here, which I regret not mentioning earlier, is that this does also fit into the broader issue at play with the separation between, quote-unquote, long-term care and health care and, and really what yeah. that even means. And and what often becomes the line of separation between long-term care and health care is whether or not someone can be, quote-unquote, cured, right? Like when we think of of long-term care... This is all stuff that, you know, these are activities of daily living, eating, bathing, toileting, small tasks, you know, very small tasks, making sure to take medication. This is, you know, things that are part of your health, right? But they are completely in a different category in terms of how we consider those expenses and who is entitled to those kinds of services and supports? And when we think of, you know, a right to health care, that ends at the door to the nursing home. That ends at long-term care. And, you know, even in the context of the ACA, the long-term care portion of the ACA was chucked for being impossible and always going to be too costly. Long-term care was initially left out of Medicare for All proposals because it was deemed you know, politically impossible because it was too expensive, and you couldn't sell Medicare for All that included long-term care. And it wasn't until there was immense pressure on Sanders that Sanders' bill reflected long-term care. And I don't think that would have happened if Jayapal's bill didn't have long-term care in there, sort of trying right. to assert that precedent. And this is a kind of... You cannot separate activities of daily living from life, right? But we do. And that's also one of the biggest problems. We don't have a right to activities of daily living and a right to activities of daily living would not actually guarantee it right at the end of the day.
0: There's one other thing I just wanted to kind of read into the recording, and Artie can use it if he wants to. Um, so this goes to that, you know, the relationship between this private um, entity and the, you know, the state of Indiana healthcare company. Um, so this language comes from an amicus brief filed by the Indiana Trial Trial Lawyers Association, um, also in support of the plaintiff respondent and. It illuminates the relationship between some of the defendants here. So I want to just read this portion about um, I think the it's the acronym is ASC. I think it stands for American Senior Communities. ASC and other private management companies are paid a quote base management fee out of the facility's operating budget and an incentive management fee equal to the difference between net resident revenues and the facility's operating expenses. Um, The the brief continues, ASC is thereby incentivized to minimize resources because its own compensation is directly tied to lowering facility operating expenses. So I think this goes to the point about how private for-profit companies are enmeshed in what looks to be state-provided nursing home care.
1: Absolutely. This stuff cannot be separated. Bill, do you have any final points? No, 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 no. Karen, thank you so much Karen, for thanks. joining us. This has been wonderful. I really appreciated you coming and and talking us through all of this and and sort of helping us break this out into the larger picture that's actually here.
0: It was my pleasure, and I honestly learned a lot from this conversation. It will inform my work, and I look forward to hearing your take on what happens when this case is ultimately decided. Oh
1: yes, we'll have to have you back if you're up for it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that. Thanks a lot, guys.
1: Karen, thank you so much again for joining us. Karen Tani is a scholar of U.S. legal history and, again, has wonderful work looking into the sort of modern American state and disability law in the late 20th century. Highly recommend her pieces for LPE blog, as well as the entire Martha Russell Symposium that we had the great honor of working together on. Um, I'll link to that. We'll make sure to link to that in the episode description And uh, you can follow Karen at KM Tani uh, on Twitter. And um, patrons, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash pod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes. Order a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at DeafPanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.